Uh, Lord, thank you uh, for giving us the opportunity to be together again. Thank you for your word and, and what it uh, has to say to us about the gospel, about, about your character, about all the things that matter the most in this world. Uh, we pray uh, just for your help tonight as we have our um, hearts and minds open to, to what you um, have to say to us. And we ask that you would just be um, glorified in this. Um, give us the things that we need to take away. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome to week three. You guys are still coming, so this is good. Um, I'm excited that you're all here. Um, today we're going to talk about the doctrine of Scripture. So this is, a do- this is a theology class, kind of systematic theology is the, is the form of theology we're talking about uh, in this. There's a, there's a lot of different types of theology uh, that are out there. You can look at biblical theology, which just traces theology through the scriptures from kind of front to back. And you can look at historical theology and how history, how history has informed our doctrines. But systematic theology is looking at topics um, and then looking at what the Bible says about those topics and kind of having a systematic look at it. So we've we've spent time talking through the doctrine of God the last two weeks. We took the doctrine of God in two weeks, which is still an inadequate amount of time, but um, we're doing our best with it. So we looked at the nature and existence of God um, the first week. Last week, we looked at his attributes. And, um, and then this week, we're going to look at uh, the scripture. And there, it should be, I think it's worth noting that a lot of systematic theologians actually put the doctrine of scripture first. Uh, and the reason for that is because we don't know God outside of the scriptures, right? And so it seems like for some guys, it's logical to say, well, let's start with why we believe the Bible and then go from there. And that's, that's a valid thing to do. I, I don't have any problem with that. That's how Wayne Grudem sets up his, his book. Um, but a lot of other theologians feel we should start with God because and, and, God existed before the word. And so it's, it's fine. However you do it, it's fine as long as you get to it. Um, so we're going to talk about scripture today. We're going to talk about a bunch of things. Uh, hopefully it won't be too, too much, but we'll, we'll do our best to get through, through this stuff. So let's just start by doing a basic uh, overview of what we mean by the word of God. Okay, so scripture, the Bible, the word of God, these are going to be used interchangeably by, by me and by all of us as Christians. You're going to hear these phrases thrown around. So uh, the, the word of God as a phrase has a number of different meanings in the Bible. Um, and I think it's just worth just doing a quick overview so that we kind of understand what we mean and define our terms. Um, the, one of the ways it's used, the word of God, that phrase is used to refer to a person, uh, Jesus, um, namely. And uh, this is used in a few different places. Um, John 1 in a couple verses, verse 1 and verse 14, refer to Jesus as the Word. Um, and then Hebrews 1, 1 to 2 talks about, he doesn't use the exact phrase Word of God uh, in reference to Jesus, but it says that, that God spoke in many ways uh, throughout time, but he's spoken finally in Jesus. And so that's kind of the same concept. And then Revelation nineteen thirteen also says that Jesus' name is the word of God. So we could be using this phrase to talk about a person, and that's a, that's a valid way to understand the word of God as Christ ex- embodies God's word. Um, but that's not what we're going to focus on tonight. 
uh, necessarily. Um, Another way that the word of God is used is to talk about speech by God. This makes sense, right? That God speaks, he, he talks, and he talks in a number of different ways. One is decrees, God's decrees, like G- Genesis 1. It's a good example, let there be light. Um, God said that, and, and then light was created. So that's a decree, and there's a lot of other examples of that. But that could be one way we understand God's word, um, his actual speech. Um, <clears throat> he also speaks through personal address, Example of this would be Matthew chapter 3, where Jesus is baptized, which we looked at, I think the first week we looked at that passage because that's the Trinitarian passage uh, where Jesus is in the water, the Spirit descends down like a dove, and then out of heaven a voice from the Father says, this is my beloved Son. And so that's a personal address directly from God uh, speaking there. Uh, He can also speak through human lips through human voices. Uh, so Jeremiah 1.7 tells us that whatever I command you, this is God speaking to Jeremiah, whatever I command you, you shall speak. And that's just one of millions of examples of God <coughs> speaking to the prophets. He does this for Isaiah, Ezekiel, pretty much all of them, uh, where he says, I'm going to tell you this, and you're going to tell them exactly what I, what I say. So there are ways in which God speaks through humans speaking. Um, And we know that actually just reading through uh, the Exodus story in my devotional time as I've doing this Bible through in a year thing um, into the part of the plagues and over and over again, God goes to Moses and says, go into Pharaoh and tell him this. And so that's God speaking um, through Moses and through Aaron. Um, And then we could also say, this is kind of the final category, God's word as Written words, written words. Good, great example of this is Exodus 31. It says he gave to Moses uh, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So God actually physically wrote the tablets uh, that contain the Ten Commandments. And so he gives those to Moses, who then brings them to the people and says, this is what God wrote. And so um, the written form uh, is one way that God, God's word can be understood. Um, so here's, here's what, basically what we're going to focus on tonight is the written word of God. Now, what's interesting here is that every form of God's speech is also recorded in the Bible for us, in the written word. So um, we would never have known what God said to Jeremiah had he not given us a written record of what he said to Jeremiah. We would have never known what God said to Moses to tell Pharaoh if it wasn't written for us. We would never actually know that Jesus was the word of God if if, uh, the Bible didn't tell us that. So uh, in all of this, God speaks primarily through his word, through the written word, what we call the Bible, what we call scripture. That's what God's word is. And that's really what we're going to focus on tonight is what is the Bible? What is it like? How do we, how do we understand it? Um, what's it about? You know, those kind of things are what we're going to deal with tonight. So 
I want to start first, um, just that kind of overview of the Word of God. I wanted to give you the categories. But I want to talk about a topic here that is really related to the Bible, but it really never gets talked about. Uh, unless you go to seminary or something and you take this obscure class like I, I did at some point. Um, but there's this thing that I think gets very little attention, but I think it's a really interesting subject and a crucial one. And it's, it's, refer, it's what we refer to as the canon of Scripture. Now, not canon like uh, a gun on a pirate ship. Okay, it has, That's spelled with two N's in the middle there. Uh, canon of Scripture is um, asking the question, what writings, what letters, what books, what, what writings actually belong in the Bible and which do not? Now, sitting in 2022, this really is not open to debate anymore. We have this pretty settled, right? Which is why most of us don't really think about this topic or talk about this much because it's not really a matter of debate as to which books belong in the Bible. We have the 66 books in the Bible. We have... Um, we, we, it's pretty much settled at this point. Um, but I think this is a really good thing for us to think about, talk through, just, again, just kind of do a quick overview of this subject. So the question is, which books or which writings belong in the Bible and which do not? The answer to that is found in something called the canon of Scripture. And the word canon, in this case, is a Greek word for a rule or a measuring stick. So basically, the idea here is that the canon of Scripture is applied in two different ways. The first is in regard to the Bible as the church's standard of faith and practice. Okay, so sometimes when you talk about the canon of Scripture, you're talking about how the Bible tells us as Christians how to live, how to believe, uh, what, what the church preaches and what the church does. And that's true. That's a, that's a valid uh, way to understand the canon. This, this word is actually used if you're, um, if you're like a fan of Star Wars or something, you'll hear like a super fan, okay, super fan. You'll hear people complain about the canon, okay? And, and what they mean is like when, whenever Disney makes a new Star Wars film and it goes off book from George Lucas's vision of... Star Wars, they say, that's not canon. It doesn't count. That's not right. And they get mad about it because they're weird, right? And that's just how it goes. Um, but, but people in popular culture actually do talk about canon uh, because it means the standard. It's like, this is what this is about. You can't deviate from this, this thing or whatever. All right, so outside of the, the church, that word is sometimes used. But outside of that, really, it's, it's a pretty obscure concept. Um, so it could be regard, I mean, uh, refer to this idea of the standard of the faith and practice of the church. But that's not really what we're going to talk about. Um, what we're going to talk about is the second meaning. Uh, the second meaning is in regards to the Bible's contents as the correct collection of inspired books. So, again, getting to that issue of how do we know what we have is truly inspired by God, is truly God's word, is not just made up by people. Like that's, that's kind of the issue here when we talk about the canon of scripture. So I want to acknowledge here that this is a really complicated subject. We're not going to fully cover it tonight. I mean, this is, this, you can get it really into the weeds on this question, but I would recommend a book to you. If you're interested in what we talk about as we go through it, there's a book, it's a pretty new book. 
written by uh, one of my professors back in the day. He, um, he wrote this book called Canon Revisited. Uh, the subtitle is Establishing the Origins and Authority of the New Testament Books. Basically, the material I'm going to share is kind of a synopsis of, of this, but he digs way deep into it. And so he wrote an entire book to talk about this subject that we're going to talk about for five or ten minutes. So, uh, so if you're really interested in it, for some reason, uh, that's a great book, but it's an interesting subject to me. Um, so let's first deal with the Old Testament. I don't, I'm not really going to touch much on the Old Testament because, well, I would say it's less complicated. I don't know that real scholars would say this, but, but I say it's less complicated because the books of the Old Testament were like well-established as scripture even before the time of Christ, Okay, so we're talking a long time ago that those, those books in the Old Testament were received, accepted, really weren't up for debate or doubt. Um, even though today, these days, with everything being questioned, there's certainly people who have questioned the validity of some books of the Old Testament. Um, but, you know, you just can't please everybody. But by the time of Christ, you didn't hear him debating with with the religious leaders of his day about which books belong in the in the Bible. Like, they all accepted it. They received it as God's word. So I really don't think we need to spend a whole lot of time on the Old Testament. This book by uh, Dr. Kruger is not even on the Old Testament canon. He deals with the New Testament side of it because that's a little bit more of a interesting and complicated story on how the early church decided which Books of the New Testament belong, belonged in the Bible. Like, we have 27 New Testament letters and books. And did they just, like, have a whole bunch of things and they just started throwing stuff, like, darts at them and, like, okay, we hit that one, that one goes in? Or was there a more, you know, consistent process? How did this come about? And the reason I want to spend the time on this is because I think we obviously take for granted that the Bible is the Bible. But... I, but I think it's a really neat thing to see that God like clearly shows his followers, his, his faithful, those who are empowered by his spirit. He, he shows these people um, what, what is his and what's right. And, and he has faithfully provided his word for us through all of these centuries, and, and it's just an amazing thing. So the, the question we're going to work through today is just how, does, how do we know which books belonged in the Bible? Um, and there were a number of books written that didn't get included, right? They were just kind of around. And uh, so we want to talk about why some and why not others. Um, fundamentally, here's the, here's the main point that this book uh, brings up. It's, it's vital that we understand that the New Testament wasn't decided by the early church. It wasn't decided. It was affirmed. And that's different. Okay, so it's not like they just kind of cherry-picked what they wanted and said, okay, we're going to make these scripture. No, what it was is that they, were, they had these writings. These writings were well in circulation, they were around the world. They were, they were being received and affirmed by the church. So the, the early church uh, leaders did not make the books God's word. They already were God's word, but the early church recognized them as such. That's, that's crucial for us to get to. 
Um, and, I, and I don't think you're going to convince a hardcore atheist of that, right? And I don't think that's necessarily our job to do. Um, somebody who's really hostile about the books of the Bible and why they are they, the way they are, they'll, they'll say, oh, it's just a man-made invention and blah, blah, blah. But really, when you look at the process that the, that the early church, the, the, the generation right after the apostles... Um, so we're talking about the, the Christians in about eighty one hundred through, I don't know when when the canon was officially established, like finally established, but we're talking like that generation of believers. All the apostles have died. Um, their writings were circulated around the churches. They were received as God's word, um, but how did they recognize them as God's word? Well, to to answer that, they they to real quickly answer that. <laughs> Uh, they affirmed it by using three criteria. And we're going to talk through each of the criteria that were used uh, for each of the 27 books of the New Testament. So um, the first was divine qualities. Divine qualities. So remember, they didn't make these God's word. They were affirming them to be God's word. So canonical books... Um, bear the marks of divinity. The books that are actually God's word, that's what we mean by canonical books, the books that are actually God's word bear the marks of divinity. Meaning that as you read these letters, you're going, I can see God's hand all over this. I can see his fingerprints on these letters. And, and as you read through the New Testament, if, if you have the spirit of God in you and if you have a heart that's open to receive God's word, you'll see that. Like, you're going to see, wow, um, yeah, this is clearly God because it, he changes people through, through his word. There's no doubt about that. He changes people. As people get into the Bible, read it seriously, actually take it to heart, believe uh, on Jesus through it, lives are changed. And uh, it's amazing when you look through, throughout history um, how many Christians like famous historical Christians after the time of the apostles came to faith because they just read the Bible. Uh, St. Augustine, uh, St. Augustine, however you want to pronounce his name. He uh, was a, a rabble rouser. He was uh, sexually immoral. He was, he was living a pretty rough life. He was a thief. And he, he writes all about this in his book called The Confessions. Um, and he, which is basically like a whole book about his testimony on how he came to, to Christ. And he talks about how he was walking down the road one day and he heard a child in a house. He couldn't tell if it was a boy or a girl. He just heard a child's voice say, singing a song, like a little Sunday school song, basically, that said, take and read, take and read. And he understood that to say, maybe God wants me to read the Bible. And he turned to Romans. He read a verse and he's like, okay, I'm, I'm in. I'm done. I, I got to give my life to Jesus. Like, that's an amazing thing. I, I had the privilege of knowing a gal, even in our own day, who, whose testimony was, I read the Bible and I became a Christian. Uh, that's, that's how God's word works. And so the divine qualities that are there were affirmed by the, the early church. The second criteria was um, corporate reception. Corporate reception. So that, what that means is that canonical books, books that actually belong in the Bible because they're written by God, are recognized as scripture by the church as a whole. 
Um, so the 27 books of our New Testament are universally, by, by the whole church, universally accepted, received, and agreed upon. Most Christians can't even agree on the color of carpeting in a church. <laughs> How do we all agree on 27 books of the, of the Bible? Like, that's a pretty amazing thing. Now, that's not to say that there weren't groups of people in different parts of the world that had books over here that they thought might be included, and this group might think, okay, this book could be included. There were definitely some lists of books that, that people disagreed on, but guess what? None of those made it in. It was only the ones that were fully agreed on, and um, that's because God impressed upon his people which books were his, and he, he worked through this whole process. So corporate reception is the second criteria. The third one, and I think this is the most important, uh, is apostolic origins. Apostolic origins means this, that canonical books, books that belong in the canon, are the result of the redemptive historical activity of the apostles. So that, this is, these are all quotations out of this, this canon revisited book. So what Kruger is talking about there is that the books of the New Testament had to have a connection to the apostles, the first century apostles of Jesus Christ. Now, we have some books in our Bible that are not written directly by an apostle. Uh, most, of our, most of them are actually from the apostle Paul. About half of them actually um, are from Paul. So that one's easy. Um, but you have some other ones that, that aren't, right? I mean, you've got Peter. That one's, that one's obvious. John 1, 2, and 3 and the Gospel of John are all John. He was an apostle. There's, so some of them were written actually directly by someone called as an apostle by Jesus. But there's a few that aren't, like Luke and Acts were, written, were both written by Luke. Um, Luke was not an apostle. But Luke got all of his material from the apostles, right? So he, was, uh, so he wasn't a, an apostle of Jesus, but his writing is the result of apostolic uh, activity because he spent his time, and he actually talks about this in his in his book. I can't remember if it's preface to Luke or to Acts, but either way, he he talks about basically talking to eyewitnesses of these things, and he collected the information and the materials uh, through going around finding those apostles and those firsthand witnesses of Jesus and getting the information. He wrote down those books. Um, Mark's gospel is another example. That, that one is not written by an apostle either. But Mark, we know from scripture uh, elsewhere, uh, I think the book of Acts tells us that Mark and Peter were like best buddies. They were, uh, they were working pretty closely together. And so most people actually believe that Mark was just more or less transcribing uh, or taking notes as Peter talked about the life of Christ. And so, so while Peter didn't directly write Mark, he likely had, he was likely the most, um, most primary source for Mark. So there's a direct connection to the apostles. It, it's interesting that the, question, the questionable books, the books that maybe the church struggled the most with agreeing on were James and Jude. Um, and... Both of those books were written not by apostles, uh, like the, of the 12 apostles, but both James and Jude were half-brothers to Jesus. 
And so I think we can give them a pass because they grew up in the same house as Jesus, right? So um, they were not believers until after the resurrection. James eventually became a leader in the church in Jerusalem. Um, he, so, so he was very much in that first century leadership of the church. So, but there have been some questions about whether James or Jude belong. And, and I obviously, you read them and you go, yeah, they, they belong. I mean, the, Martin Luther famously did not like James um, for one reason or another. He called it the epistle of straw. Um, I think my personal view is that James just had a fundamental misunderstanding about what James is talking about, or Luther had a misunderstanding of what James was talking about. And uh, that's my view, but whatever, I'll, I'll debate him when we get to heaven and that'll be great. So, uh, and he'll, he'll wipe the floor with me. So, um, but yeah, we just, you know, you have seen some questioning throughout history on a couple of things, but the vast, vast, vast majority of Christians have agreed because they're clearly connected to the apostles. They're clearly received by the, the church as a whole. And, and as you read them, they speak of God's handiwork and they just, they, they appear to be scripture. So the first one is obviously the most subjective um, of these. The third one is the most objective. Like you can trace back directly to an apostle or of some kind, or at least an associate of an apostle in these books. So uh, that just kind of gives you the, the, the criteria. It's, um, it's an interesting, interesting question. So those are the uh, yeah, that's kind of the deal with the, the canon. Let me answer one more question here, just for those of you who may be curious about this. Um, what about the Apocrypha? So I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I know a number of you grew up in Catholicism, and welcome. We're glad you're here. So glad. Uh, my family, my, my dad's extended family uh, are all Catholics. I've got a, a, an uncle who's a priest in Chicago. I love those people. Um, and, and I, I have a lot of, uh, love for them. So I'm not trying to rip on Catholicism. I will have to talk about some of the differences between our view of theology and theirs tonight, because scripture is one of the key things that we would differ on. Um, and so I will talk a little bit about Catholicism tonight, not, not in a way that I hope isn't a tacky and that's not my goal. Uh, but I just hope that you would see, see some of the, um, the, the views that I would have on it and that. Uh, our our kind of brand of Christianity, for lack of a better word, would would have as Protestants. But let's let's address the Apocrypha real quick. So this is interesting because if you open up a Catholic Bible and you open up a Protestant Bible and put them side by side, uh, you'll notice that the Catholic Bible has more books, a significant number of books that are that are not in the Protestant Bible. And those books would fall in between the Testaments. So they would fall in between the Old and New. Um, so the Catholic Church would not say that the Apocrypha belongs in the New Testament, because they were written before Christ. Um, but they're not really, they weren't really received and accepted by the Jewish people as Scripture. So they kind of are in this no man's land. Uh, but basically what the Apocrypha is, is a collection of books that are kind of in the the middle period between the Testaments. And um, they, um, the, the, the Catholic Church would accept these books as canonical scripture. The Protestants came along in the 1500s and kind of said, uh, looking at the data, looking at the information, going, these actually don't meet the criteria that the early church had 
to be cut to be canonical books. So why are they in the Bible? Why are they included as canon? Because they, they don't actually meet the criteria. They don't they're not directly traced back to a prophet or an apostle. They they haven't been uh, necessarily received by by everybody. They're they don't necessarily have the fingerprints of God on them. So what's the deal? So basically the the Protestant Reformation said we don't need these books. Uh, the Catholics um, at the Council of Trent doubled down on those books um, and said, look, we're going to still count them. And so there is a divide. Um, I think most, most people would say the, the apocryphal books can be interesting. They may shed some light on historical things, uh, but they're prob- at least our, our version of Christianity as Protestants would say they're not scripture. They shouldn't be taken as authoritative or uh, informing our theology, uh, but you're not going to like you know hurt yourself to read them if you're interested in reading them. It's like it's can be interesting history, um, but that would basically be the main the main view um, of a of the Protestant uh, movement. So that, that's a whole other thing. I just kind of wanted to tack it on real quickly. Um, but if you have any questions. Uh, about this really complicated subject. We, it's on the screen now, so you're allowed to ask questions, Garland. And uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But yeah, we can, um, if you guys have any questions about this, I'll try my best to answer it. It's kind of, they're kind of complicated um, subjects, but yeah. Just the thing that I've heard people talk about who were not necessarily believers is like when the, when the Bible is transposed over the centuries to a different great question um that's a great question so i was actually thinking about getting into that but i was like how deep do we want to run into this <laughs> uh, it's a great question though so i'll give you my very quick synopsis of of the the language question and so yes the the old testament was originally written in hebrew and a little bit of aramaic there were a couple of books that were, I think it was Aramaic. Um, and, and then the New Testament was written in Koine Greek, which was like the common Greek language, sort of how we would speak English. Unlike the guys across the pond who would speak posh English, we just talk normal English, right? So that's, that was Koine Greek. Koine Greek was not the philosopher's Greek of Plato and Aristotle. It was the common man's Greek, which is interesting because God chose the language of the people for his, his book. Um, but anyway, so as, as time went on, the Old Testament got translated into Latin, and it's called the Septuagint. And, uh, and that basically became the kind of the, the, the Greeks' um, version of the Old Testament that they could read in their own language. The question about it getting lost in translation, um, it, in, in, the, in the case of the Old Testament, there's really not a, a ton of issue there because the the people of Israel, the scribes, were meticulous at keeping uh, the manuscripts. So a scribe's entire job was to write down as those manuscripts aged because they were all written on this like papyrus paper that was di- basically disintegrating. They would write it on, on a new piece of paper and they would do it not word by word but literally character by character. They would copy these things down. So that way there were no mistakes, or as much as humanly possible, there were no mistakes. Um, when you get to the New Testament, they, they continued that, 
Um, but, but inevitably, there's human error in this. And so a guy named Bart Ehrman, who was an evangelical Christian and is now an atheist, and he's, he teaches New Testament um, at um, University of North Carolina. And um, he's basically made it his mission to turn every Christian student into an atheist and give them all the reasons why they shouldn't believe the Bible. And he's a, he's a, he is actually a Greek scholar. I should give the man credit where credit's due. Like he's, he's an expert in his field. Um, but one of the things that he will talk about is how there are, there are thousands of textual variants. That's the fancy word for differences between the manuscripts. And, uh, and he'll say there are thousands and thousands of textual variants, and so we can't trust the Bible. It's all, but what he doesn't tell you, what he'll admit, kind of pub- privately and not so much publicly, is that none of the textual variants or differences between manuscripts have any bearing whatsoever on the actual theology of the church. There's not, there's no like manuscript over here that says Jesus isn't God, and then one that says he is God. Like there's no major differences. The textual variance he's talking about is, oh, this scribe forgot to put a comma here, or he spelled this word differently than, or he had a different spelling for this word than that word. Those kind of insignificant things. So yes, I mean, if you want to split straws, technically there are thousands of variants in the manuscripts, but nothing of substance, nothing of consequence. And so if you want to, if you want to dig into that, um, there's a guy named uh, Dallas. Uh, you know Wallace? Wallace. Daniel Wallace. He's a Greek expert. He's an evangelical. Teaches out of Dallas Theological Seminary. That's where Dallas came from. Um, so, so Daniel Wallace has a website where he's actually like digitizing and um, trying to preserve all the New Testament manuscripts that we have in the world. And him and Bart Ehrman are actually working on this project together, even though they're completely on different sides of the issue. But he's got some really fascinating stuff on um, yeah, um, basically how we can trust the Bible, why we can trust the Bible from the, from the manuscript side of it. It's kind of a complex subject, but yeah, it, it's a good question. And it's one that I think we have good answers for if you go to the, the right sources. So yeah, Daniel Wallace, I think he's got his own website. You can Google him or whatever, and, and I'm sure you'll, you'll find some, some, of his, some of his sermons or messages and but yeah, if you're interested in a deep dive on that. I'm not. I just, yeah. I've always had the theory that if, it, if it's in there, God wanted it there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's true. And if God, if God didn't want it in, it wouldn't be in. So it, you have the sovereignty of God in all of this too, but that is good. Sorry, that was probably way more than I, than I needed to say, but yeah. So there's the comment that I'll butcher okay. um, about we believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God without error mm-hmm. in the original or something. In original like manuscripts, yep. Yeah, how does that fit in kind of with even some of the stuff that Garland is asking? Yeah, so basically what that kind of a phrase indicates is that it's trying to account for human error, right? So it's trying to account for the fact that like a human being can translate into English from Greek and they may not hit the exact right there's some interpretation involved when you're translating from one language to another. There just has to be. Um, so I think what they're trying to get at is a little bit of humility in, in the Bible translation side of it and to say, look, we absolutely believe that God's word is perfect 
as it was written originally. There's no question about that. But there may be some minor mistakes here and there that we can acknowledge might, might exist. I don't know if they would have specific examples. I don't have any off the top of my head. But just places where a human translator might go, well, this is what this means. And they might not be right because they're a human and may not have a good grasp of the Greek language or whatever else might be. So that's kind of where they're going with that, though. I think with what Garland said, with what you said, that when we see the hand of God changing lives in a certain sense, and I know this is whitewashing a little bit, it doesn't matter what it says or how it's translated, because God is still bigger than the box, and God is still able to accomplish his work, Mm -hmm. and we can trust him to trust him in it or with it all. Yeah, no, I agree. I do agree. And I, I do want to say that. Like, I think there's, there's a lot of reason to trust the Bible as we have it. Like, e- even in our English translations, even though they may be um, imperfect in, from a human perspective of like, okay, this word might not be the exact precise word, but the meaning and, and the point that God's getting across, absolutely right. He's going to use his word to get to people's hearts. And the minutia just doesn't really matter at the end of the day. Uh, and so I agree with that. I do think there are better translations of the, of the New Testament into English than others. Um, I preach from the ESV. I do think that's the closest, my, my personal view, I think it's the closest Greek to English translation. Uh, the NIV is good for sure. Uh, I, I have some foibles with it, but it's not a big deal. Um, and, but, any, but here's what I always tell people. Whatever translation of the Bible you'll actually read is the right translation for you, okay? (laughs) So read it. Like just get whatever it is. If it's King James or if it's NLT or anything in between, if you're going to read it, that's where we want you to be. Like that, we're not going to nitpick about translational things. So yeah, so that's good though. I appreciate it. Um, Let's move on here to kind of the the primary issues we want to talk about. Um, So the majority of... The teaching about the Bible that we, that we talk about in systematic theology is classified into four characteristics. So the four characteristics that we're going to walk through each of these in turn will be the authority of Scripture. So Scripture is the authority. Okay, we'll talk about what that means. Secondly, the clarity of Scripture. So the Scripture is clear. Third is the necessity of Scripture. So it's needed. And fourth is the sufficiency of Scripture, meaning that it's all that we need um, for, for what we're talking about. So, so we'll unpack each of those, those things uh, tonight, and, um, and we'll just keep rolling through. So let's talk about the authority of Scripture. This is a good, this is a good thing to talk through, um, because I think this is where you have to start, is that the Bible is authoritative. It is uh, God's word. And so here's what the authority of scripture means by definition. This is Grudem's definition. I'll be working off of Grudem's definitions for each of these categories, just if you want to source that or whatever. Um, he, He says this, the authority of scripture means that all the words in scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. So this, the authority of Scripture, basically, simply put, is defined as every word of Scripture is God's words. 
And so what he says, as the king of the universe, as our creator, as our redeemer, uh, is authoritative. It, it comes from him. It, it's from him and through him and to him. So we are to sit under its authority. We are to believe it and, and obey it. And if we don't believe it or obey it, we are disbelieving or disobeying God himself. Um, so let's talk through a little bit of that and we'll take it into pieces. Uh, let's talk about what it means that all the words of scripture are God's words. Let's take that first part of the definition and unpack that. Um, this is what the Bible claims for itself. Okay, so the Bible itself tells us that, that the Bible is God's word, um, which I know may be kind of circular reasoning a little bit, right? It sounds like, well, you believe the Bible because the Bible says to believe the Bible. And that's, a lot of critics will say, well, that's just circular reasoning. Um, yes, I mean, it, it is kind of circular reasoning. But, but what we need to recognize is that every belief system is circular reasoning. You, there's no belief system anywhere that doesn't start with an authority and that authority is uh, what you believe kind of just by, by trust and by faith, right? So if you're an evolutionary atheist, you would say that the science says, proves that, that the world was whatever billion years old and that we all evolved out of slime. Well, how do you know that? Well, because the science says. So you're working through this circular thing no matter what. Um, so I, th- I think people who, who argue circular reasoning uh, they're just sort of, they just don't want to look in the mirror and, and contend with their own issues. I mean, it, it's sort of an easy cop-out, honestly, for, for dealing with this. The, the issue isn't so much is the circular reason. The, the, the bigger issue is, is what, let's deal with what the Bible actually says. Like, let's, let's see and hold that up to, to the reality of the world. So uh, 2 Timothy three fifteen to 16 in part says, All scripture is God-breathed. God breathed is an interesting phrase. Um, basically means, this is a literal translation off of the Greek phrase, but it means that God brought it, brought it about. He breathed it out. It's, it's inspired by him. It is uh, out of his very mouth and existence. And, and so he breathed this scripture out. And so if the scripture, all of it, Old and New Testament is breathed by God, inspired by God, given to us from him, then we can clearly say that this is his word and it has authority, the same authority that that he does. Let's look at a couple other uh, examples here. Uh, 2 Peter 1, 19 to 21 says this. Um, Let's see, is this right? Yep. Um, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own, someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So 
the Apostle Peter is telling us that the Scripture uh, is from God, and men wrote it down as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We'll, we'll revisit this passage in a, in a little bit for another example. Um, but right there, we're talking about how no prophecy, no word of God was ever produced by the will of man. We didn't write it. People didn't write this down. Now, they physically wrote it down, or they physically spoke the words or whatever, but ultimately it's from God, working and leading those who wrote the scriptures. Um, we could see in, well, I'll just give you a quick overview. We don't have to turn there. Matthew 22, 122 basically says that the, the, it's in the passage of Jesus' birth story. And the angel, or uh, Matthew rather, says that all of this was said to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said. Right, so the prophet of the Old Testament spoke, and God is using that to fulfill those, uh, that promise. Uh, John chapter 5, let's go there, just because it's a couple verses we can look at. John 5, 45 to 47 says, let me turn one more page. Jesus is speaking here. He's speaking to the Pharisees. And he says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. For there is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus is actually uh, equating him, his words to the same authority as Moses' words, which Moses' words were well established to be Scripture. I mean, if anybody was going to be questioned about their, authority, their position in the, in the Bible, uh, it isn't going to be Moses. Moses was like the guy who, who got actually the tablets like, that were written by God himself, right? So the people in Jesus' day revered Moses. They, they almost worshipped Moses. It was pretty darn close to that. And, and Jesus is saying, hey, I'm not going to accuse you to the Father, but I'll tell you who will. Moses will, because you don't even believe him. He wrote about me. And so he says, if you don't believe his words, how are you going to believe mine? So he's saying my words are the same, have the same weight and authority as Moses, which is Old Testament scripture. Um, so I, I think we'll, we'll stop with those examples. But you also have Acts 3.18. Uh, you've got Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Um, so all scripture is breathed by God. It's, it's written by him. It's authoritative in that. So all the words of scripture are God's words. But this does not imply, uh, we shouldn't take this to imply, that this was pure dictation. So it's not as if the the writers of the New Testament, uh, or Old Testament for that matter, were just sitting down in a room and God just spoke and said, here's what you write down, just write it down. Like, no, God, God allowed them to use their, their personal touches, their, their own experiences, the things that they were working through. You see that a lot in Paul's letters, right? Because they're letters. They're letters to particular people or to churches. And so, yeah, there's a lot of like personal things that Paul writes. And yet that doesn't diminish the fact that all those things are also fully true and fully from God and authoritative for us. So we shouldn't assume that it's all dictation, um, sometimes God does dictate in some cases, um, but not in every case. 
And that's kind of what, what Peter, I think, in that verse we read is trying to get at when he says that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That implies that they're kind of just moving along the, the, the life path here that they're on. And yet the Holy Spirit was working in and through that as they wrote these words. They spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So they're not just plopped down and told, this is what you have to write and just write it down. Um, they don't, we don't need to hold to a dictation view of authority we can, because we can see that God's Holy Spirit actually works in and through these people as they, as they write the words. So that's the first part, which is um, all the words of Scripture are God's words. Let's tackle the second half of the definition. Therefore, to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. All right, let's look at a few examples from Scripture here. Let's go to Luke 24, 25 to 27. This is after the resurrection. Jesus is on the road to Emmaus. He's talking to his disciples who do not recognize him. Um, And so they're just kind of sad and thinking that Jesus is dead and Jesus is talking to them. But look at what he says in verse 25 to 27. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So, so there, here he basically confronts the, the struggle to believe that these disciples have. Right? He says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. To believe what? All that the prophets have spoken. So basically he's saying, listen, you should believe and know that, that I'm alive um, because the prophets said I would be like you. You guys just need to read your Bibles and you should know that the resurrection is coming. And, and so he, um, of course, their eyes weren't quite open to him yet at this point. Um, basically, the context before this is that they're telling him about how Jesus died. They're telling Jesus about how he died and, and then said, well, these, these ladies that were with us saw him, said they saw him alive, but we're not sure we believe it. So that's kind of why he confronts them about their unbelief. And, and then he unpacks the whole scripture for them on, on how it concerns himself, which is amazing because all of the Bible is about Jesus. And I would have loved to be a fly on the wall for that sermon. That would have been amazing. Um, someday I'm sure we'll hear it. We didn't get to hear what he said about himself in all the scripture, but it's, it's amazing to think. So, so basically Jesus is making the point that these, these are God's words. The, the Old Testament prophets are God's word. The Old Testament prophets prophesied that the Christ would be raised from the dead. And these guys weren't believing that in that moment. And so he calls them out for it. Um, let's go to uh, John fifteen 20. We'll just look at it. There's only a few examples, so we'll look at them. Um, John fifteen twenty says... Um, Remember the word that I have said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. 
If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And so, so there's, he's connecting the idea of keeping Jesus's word, doing Jesus's word, and then telling the apostles, his, his early followers, uh, that if you're speaking on my behalf, they'll listen to you too, right? And so uh, he's kind of getting this prefaced uh, uh, out there to go, you guys are going to write a lot more about this stuff. And if they don't believe me, they're not going to believe you. But if they do believe me, then they'll, they'll believe you, right? So there's that one. Um, quickly, Second Peter 3, 1 to 2. We'll just kind of fly through some of these. Um, Second Peter 3, here Peter's writing um, 3, 1 to 2. It says, um, this is how, oh, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior um, through your apostles. So Peter's saying, we're, we're your apostles and we're speaking the words of Jesus to you. And so you should listen to this. You should remember them. You should pay attention to them. I'm reminding you to, to pay attention to what your apostles are saying about Jesus. Um, and then we'll look at one more. Second Thessalonians 3, um, verse uh, 14 and 15. Uh, Paul here is writing to the Thessalonians, and he says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Verse 15, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So there Paul is saying this, basically he's equating this letter with the authority of Jesus and saying, if you, if you don't listen to this, you need to confront the person who's not believing it and, you know, deal with that and separate from them. But treat them like a brother. This is, this is so confusing because it's like, wait, what? You're telling us to have nothing to do with them, to be ashamed, but don't, don't treat them like an enemy. Just warn them like a brother. I, I, yeah, there you go. That's, that's as clear as mud, Paul. But there you go. Um, that's why Peter says that Paul is confusing sometimes. He just... <laughs> Paul says, Peter says that, actually. We'll look at that in a bit. But, so there's that. Um, one more kind of issue on the authority of Scripture I want to talk about, and that is why we should see it as authoritative. And the answer is because it's true. The Scriptures are true. There, there's truthfulness in what God says, and that's why we sit under its authority. Um, God cannot speak falsely, Titus 1-2. Um, we see in Psalm 12, 6, that all the words of Scripture are completely true and without error. We see in John 17, 17, as Jesus prays, he says, uh, essentially, that God's words are the ultimate standard of truth. He says, your word is truth. Right? So, so we have this true book, this, th- this book that comes from God who cannot lie to us, who, who will always speak the truth, who gives us this standard. And this is why we sit under it, in, in, um, under its authority. One quick thing to walk through before we move on 
to the next one is a couple questions. One question really is, is the Bible our only authority on matters of faith, salvation, the doctrines of Christianity? This is, this is going to, I'm just going to be honest. This is one of the big divides, maybe the central divide between Roman Catholics and Protestants. That this is a big issue is of the authority. Where does the authority come from? And what sources of authority are there? The, the, the Protestant Reformation had uh, about five slogans, more or less, five kind of big points. And one of them was what is called sola scriptura, which is Latin for scripture alone. And that was a, a movement away from Roman Catholicism, which did not believe in scripture alone as the authority of God. And so this, is a, this has been a divide for 500 years for, uh, between Protestants and Roman Catholics. And Roman Catholicism essentially has a three-tiered authority structure. So um, basically what they would say is that scripture, including the Apoc- Apocrypha, would be a source of authority. The second source of authority for the Catholics is the church councils. So going back through kind of the history of the church, more or less the church history. And then the third source of authority would be what's called the magisterium, um, which is uh, kind of the, the body of bishops, the Pope being the head of that, and then the, the cardinals and all those, you know, the college of bishops. So the Roman Catholicism uh, would, would basically say that scripture is a authority, but it's not the authority on, on matters of faith and practice. That we actually have to have the Bible and we need to look back on all the church history and we also need to uh, listen to what the Pope and the bishops say as well. Now, here's the problem with that. Which is what the Roman, uh, which is what, excuse me, the uh, the ref- reformers struggled with, is that they could trace back all of these uh, these statements from popes from years on year and years, which would declare these things what what they would say ex cathedra, meaning from the throne of the pope, the papal throne. They would make these declarations, but then they would contradict each other, as as you know, because one pope would die, another one would come in and. They just had this kind of mishmash of all of these contradictory things. And the reformers are going, but how can we have that as an authority when we can't even keep it straight? You know, so they they um, struggled with that. And so that's why they pivoted towards, no, no, only God's word can truly be the authority for the Christian life because only God's word is fully and completely true without error. And and it can speak um, to every issue perfectly. So whatever God says, he says in his book. And we don't need the, the magisterium. We don't need necessarily the church councils, although the church councils teach us a lot. Like it, they're, they're wonderful things. The councils of Nicaea and, and Chalcedon, and they, they really established some beautiful things. They preserved the, the doctrines of the faith. There, there's good in it, right? I'm not against all of that, but... We don't hold those things up as authoritative. We would say that the, that the councils of the church throughout history were just reaffirming what the Bible already teaches. Like if they contradicted the Bible, they'd be wrong. And so 
we can we can affirm the creeds so, insofar as they actually affirm the scriptures. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, these these guys at the Council of Nicaea who defended the Trinity and the deity of Christ, that's good. Why? Because the Bible teaches that Jesus is God. So it's good that the Council of Nicaea also affirm that Jesus is God. We can affirm that and say that. We don't have to toss all of the the history of the church out. I think that's kind of reckless, but it's an issue of are those statements authoritative? And I would say no, they're not. Not not in so at least not in as far as they um they would disagree with scripture. If they do, then we would say they're wrong, Bible's right. And so that's that's but I'm a Protestant. So that's where that's where I would land on this. But I just thought I would uh, say that just because I know there's quite a few people who have come from that background. And uh, again, you can agree, disagree. Like we're just, I'm just telling you the view that I have. So um, I think I got here. Uh, yeah, Protestants during the Reformation taught that the Bible is our final authority because it alone is without error to speak of the finished work of Christ in the gospel. So we shouldn't seek anything new from God or from other people, because God has finally and fully spoken to us in his word. And I think that's where I really want to hone in on Hebrews 1, 1 to 2. Because I think a lot of times we as Christians want God to continue to say things, but what we need to recognize is that God has said all that needs to be said for our salvation and for our godliness and for our life in his word. And this is what the book of Hebrews affirms. He says, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Right? So the prophets spoke a long time ago, when, as he's writing this. Um, and, and he talked in a lot of variety of ways. But, verse 2, in these last days, meaning all the days from Christ's ascension until his return... That's what last days means in the book of Hebrews and the whole New Testament. Um, He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So the, the key thing to focus on in this statement is that he has spoken to us by his son. So Jesus is the final word of God. And, and here's the thing. The Bible as a whole, taking it all together, is all about Jesus. And we're going to get to this. I don't want to start preaching too fast to, you know, right now. But everything is about Jesus. The Old Testament, as Jesus said in Luke 24, we read this, they concern him. The Old Testament concerns him. It's about him. And then the New Testament, of course, is about him because it recounts his life. And then the aftermath after his resurrection and how this affects the church. And so the books we have in the New Testament and in the Old Testament point us to Jesus. But Jesus is the final word. We don't need anything new from from God or from others because we have Christ as the final say in in how we can relate to to God. So that would, of course, be the issue when you you start talking about um, Islam or Mormonism um, or trying to think if there's any other. Yeah, Christian science. Um, These are all religious movements that have additional books beyond the Bible. And they would all all say um, that the Bible has its place, but 
they're not the final authority. Um, the, the Quran is the final authority, or the Book of Mormon is the final authority, or, or the, you know, whatever the Christian science thing is. I don't even know. Uh, so don't need to get into that. But that's, that's what they would say. It's like, yeah, the Bible's got its place, but it's, it's just one more step in the long process. And I, I was reminded of this a few years back. Uh, some Mormon missionaries came to my house. They had no idea what, what they were getting into. <laughs> I feel so bad for these guys. They're like 18-year-old kids right out of high school. It's, uh, anyways, so they, they started with me, and they said they, their, their tactic was, do you believe in prophets? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I believe in prophets. They're like, well, how do you know there wasn't more prophets after Jesus? And I just said, well, because the Bible says there's not more prophets after Jesus. It's right here in Hebrews chapter 1, you know. And, and so we kind of talked a little bit about that. And I invited them to come back, and we can talk some more. And they never did. Uh, I don't know. But it's okay. So anyhow, uh, with all that said, any questions on the authority of Scripture before we, we move on to the clarity of Scripture? Yeah. Yes. I grew up Catholic, went to Catholic school, and now I understand why you read the same thing every three years on Sunday. You probably never did First Timothy that we just went through. Because mm. how could they? Sure. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I know that the Catholic Church has a, they have a calendar, and they work through what they work through. It, it, it's the same, because I, I did it since I was in third grade. Okay. And you did the same readings every, it would change every three years, and then on the fourth year, you'd go back to the first year. Okay. And I noticed hmm. this, and I asked the priest, I said, why, are we do, why aren't we reading the whole Bible? And he said, we are. But they're reading the other stuff on Monday through Friday, and who goes to church on Monday uh, through Friday? Okay. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I know. That's when I made my decision. Sure. <laughs> I know for a, a long time, I don't know if it's still this way, but I, I know that Catholicism for a long time kept discouraging people from reading their Bibles because they, they, they wanted the priest to be the one that could tell you what it really means. I was and, told by priests yeah. because I asked him in fourth or fifth grade. I said, so when are we going to start reading the Bible? And he said, you don't. I do, and I tell you what it says. Mm. And I said, I know how to read. <laughs> <laughs> then I had to stay in Parisa. So. <laughs> 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 oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> if anyone has any more questions about Catholicism, Beth is the authority on it. I mean, you, you do know more than I do, I'm sure, on this. So, Well, that's great. Well, we'll keep moving on. Um, so let's talk about the clarity of Scripture. This is the second characteristic. So the authority and secondly, the clarity. Here's the definition. Uh, the Scripture is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by anyone who will read it or hear it. I added that. Seeking God's help and being willing to follow it. Um, I added or hear it because not everybody can read. And so God's word is just as profoundly impactful if if it's read uh, as if it's read, uh, as heard as if it's read, excuse me. So, um, but this is the point, that scripture is able to be understood by anyone who is reading it or hearing it while seeking God's help. That's crucial. Really, th- this is, I think, what you get to when you, when you start dealing with the Pharisees and Jesus and the misunderstandings that they constantly had about the scriptures 
is that Jesus continually told them, you don't understand this because you're deaf and you're blind. And, and you're, he's not talking literally, he's speaking spiritually. These people were deaf and blind to the, to the truths of God. And so we need God's help to understand the Bible. That is absolutely true. Um, but, but the Bible is clear and able to be understood by anyone that, that seeks God's help. I, I don't believe God will ever say no to someone who's asking for help to understand his word. I, I really think that's a prayer God will always gladly answer for, for his people. And so um, this, one verse on this is Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. What the psalmist is, is affirming that the word of God illuminates in front of us. It shows us clearly the path, the way that we're to walk. And it's a light. It's a lamp. And so we, we can understand the Bible as God opens our eyes to understand it. But let's acknowledge this. The Bible acknowledges this. That there are harder things to understand in the Bible. You may, you may be thinking, man, I've tried to read the Bible and there's a lot I just don't get. And same here. Uh, I, I preach the Bible almost every week and there are plenty of times I get to the passage that we're, we're preaching because we just preach through books. So I have to deal with what's there. I can't skip. Uh, I wish I could sometimes, right? Because you guys would all call me out on that if I tried to skip something. So we deal with it. And there are times where I've confronted the Bible and I'm reading it and I'm going, I do not know what this means. <laughs> like, I don't get this. And, and, you know, God has helped me consistently. Um, now, not perfectly. I'm sure I've said plenty. I know I've said plenty of boneheaded things and, and foolish things. And uh, when you talk for, for a living, in a sense, you're going to say stupid things. That's just the reality as a sin, sinful person. Um, but it's amazing how God does open uh, your eyes. If you ask him for help, he, he opens your eyes to understand at least some, some glimpse of it. Um, but there are hard things to understand. If you look at Second Peter, I love this passage. I kind of referenced it a, a minute ago, but Second Peter three fifteen to sixteen. So a little further down in that same chapter, we um, we were reading. Um, yeah, here's what he says. Um, he says, "And count the salvation of our Lord as salvation, the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you." according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. A couple things to notice in this. One, I find it hilarious that Peter calls Paul hard to understand when Second Peter is probably the hardest book to understand. <laughs> I think that's just hilarious because I'm going, did, Peter, did you read the letter you just wrote? This is like extremely confusing. Okay, great. Thanks. Um, but so I find that laughable. He's like, ah, oh, Paul's hard to understand. Paul is hard to understand sometimes, but he, he acknowledges that Paul is, is affirming the same things that Peter's affirming, right? He says that just to remind you, like our beloved brother, he loves Paul. Our beloved brother, Paul, also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all the letters when he speaks in matters of these. And then, so he's basically saying, hey, he's affirming what we're saying here. And then he acknowledges that some of it is hard to understand. And then he acknowledges that some people twist what Paul is saying. 
they, they take the scriptures and they manipulate it for their own, uh, for their own ends. But then here's the key. And at the end of verse 16, he says, as they do the other scriptures. So Peter is actually acknowledging that Paul's words are scripture. So, so even from the time of the apostles, the letters of Paul and the letters of Peter, I think we could safely assume that all of these letters that were circulating were not just, oh, this is Paul's opinion about some things. No, they were actually called scripture here. He equates Paul's writings with the other scriptures. So that's, that's important to understand is that the New Testament didn't just get decided, going back to the canon issue, didn't just get decided randomly or willy-nilly. These were things that were already in the first century, many of them at least, affirmed as scripture. So anyways, that's, that's an interesting thing. So the Bible here, the point that we're trying to get at is that these, there are some things that are harder to understand. Peter acknowledges this about some of what Paul writes. But what the clarity of scripture means is this, that what must be known for salvation can be understood by anyone whom God gives understanding. So we're not saying that by the clarity of scripture, we're not saying that everything in the scripture is just gonna make perfect sense all the time. In fact, there may be times in your life where you read scripture and you're going, I don't get what this particular thing means. And then you may come back to it another time in your life and go, oh, okay, I understand that, right? There's seasons in which things make more sense than others and God speaks through his word in different ways at different times or it lands differently um, depending on where we're at in life. All that's true. But what's clear is this, that everything that needs to be known for salvation, everything that we need to know for the, the truth of Jesus and life in him, that can be understood. And that can be understood by anyone. This is why little children can grasp the gospel. It's not a complicated thing to grasp, but if their <laughs> hearts are open and re- ready to receive, then God can use his word in the life of a little child to bring them to salvation. That's a beautiful thing. And you, you do not, I mean, even people with intellectual disabilities can understand enough of Jesus to get there. And, I, and I'm really, and I mean, we could get into a whole discussion about severely mentally disabled people and are they just doomed or you know that's that's God's deal to handle I can't I can't necessarily speak to that with with authority but but what I can say is I I believe that God will be gracious to those people as he will be to infants that die before they can come to faith and all those other things right I I believe that I don't know that I have a verse to prove it but I I believe that God would be gracious in that that's another subject um, but the point is here that, yeah, 1 Corinthians 1 talks about how God gives understanding to the simple. He gives understanding. And that's what the psalm says too, right? That God's word uh, gives understanding to the simple. The simple are just regular people. They're not intellectual giants. They're just regular people who, don't, who may not have the, the, the strongest intellect in the world, but they can understand God's word. So this truth should give us some real encouragement. And the encouragement is this, that as you read your Bible, um, you should do that ideally every day and with great eagerness because you can understand it. God will open your eyes to see it. And you don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to have a seminary education. You don't have to be 
uh, an expert in anything to read your Bible and take away from it what God wants you to take away from it. I, I do think that we need to go, come into our, our study of the Bible, our reading of the Bible prayerfully. And I, and I try as, as often as I can. I don't do it perfectly. But when I sit down to read my Bible in the morning as, as I'm working through it, I try to say a prayer and ask the Lord to help me understand what he wants me to get out of this. And there's some passages where I'm like, good luck with that, right? Because it's just like I'm in, I'm in a passage that is going to be tough. But God can do it, and he, he will show us what we need to see. So you don't need to be a scholar. You don't need to be a pastor. You don't need to be a priest to, to recognize what the Bible has to say. Every Christian can read it and understand it. And one of the most beautiful things about the Protestant Reformation is that it put the Bible in people's hands. Martin Luther translated the Bible because he was an expert in Greek and Hebrew. He could translate it into German, and the people could read it in their own language. And that made Rome really angry. <laughs> like They tried to kill him for it. So um, John Wycliffe uh, translated the Bible the first time into English. He was the first English translation of the Bible. John Wycliffe was killed uh, at the stake, was burned at the stake by the Roman Catholic Church. Again, I'm not trying to rip on him. This is just history, okay? Uh, he, was, he was burned at the stake, um, and then they uh, buried him, um, and then they dug up his bones, and they burned them again, <laughs> literally, and then they dumped him in a river so that he could never be found, and I'm like, wow, cool. Um, so John Wycliffe, he translated the Bible into English. John Calvin translated the Bible into French, um, these were all Reformation people, and they had a conviction that the Bible should be in the hands of the people because that's where life transformation comes. Um, here's one quick question here for us. Is there a role for scholars? We've been talking about the clarity of Scripture. We've been talking about how you don't need to be a scholar. So is there a role for them? Do, do scholars have a place? And I think they do. Uh, I definitely think they do. You probably think they do too, but... Let me give you a few examples of why we need scholars. Um, one, they can teach the Bible clearly. God has given some people the ability to unpack the Bible, and that's a good thing. While we can all learn and even teach ourselves to some degree from the Bible with the Holy Spirit's help, um, the Bible clearly teaches that we, we have teachers for a reason. The Bible has uh, given that as a gift, one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, that God has appointed teachers for the church. So that's a good thing. Um, scholars can also explore the Bible deeply because they have time to do it. And so they can mine its depths more, uh, more readily than you or I could do because they have the expertise in, in the biblical languages or any variety of things um, to let them dig deeper. Uh, they can defend the Bible passionately. Um, they, there's a role for scholars to go up against academic uh, atheists like Bart Ehrman and others who would who would argue that the Bible's not true, and these guys can step in and go, "Well, no, here here's why it is," and that that's a good thing. That's a benefit to the church. And then they can supplement the Bible. They can help us understand some of the context and history. While we don't need those things to understand the Bible, um, it it fleshes out the Bible for us in a more profound way. It helps us grasp maybe some nuggets that would be missed because we're not in the first century like the first readers were. Like the first readers didn't need to know some of the historical stuff because they were living in it. They understood it intuitively because it was their culture. 
we're 2,000 years and half a world removed from the places where the Bible was, was written. And so it's helpful for us. It's not necessary. Uh, I want to be clear about that. We don't have to have all that extra information to understand the Bible. If you got plopped onto a desert island and you just had a copy of your English Bible, God bless you. God will use it in your life. Absolutely. But it's still a blessing that we have information beyond that to help us fill it in and help us take some more out of it. So I think that's helpful. But anyways, um, just thought since I'm talking about the clarity of Scripture, I don't want to completely bag on the scholars in the world. They're, they have a place for us too. Um, clarity of Scripture questions before we go on to necessity. Yeah. Because when I grew up, there was two words that were used repetitively. The Bible was instituted by God, that it is all over in there, that the things that are recorded, the things that are leading you where it is, it's it's the word they used, instituted. Mm -hmm. And the writings of the apostles were inspired by God. Yep. And I think that really helps you... um, get a better vision that these guys didn't just go down and say, hmm, what am I going to write today? It was burning in them, yeah. this is what I'm going to write today, and I'll get it out the best I can in my human way. Mm-hmm. And that's... That's great. Yep. Those were the two words that were used a lot. That's good. That I thought were helpful. Yep, I appreciate that. Okay, well, let's keep rolling. Um, necessity of Scripture. This is the third characteristic. Uh, Here's what it means. The necessity of Scripture means that the Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel, for maintaining a spiritual life, and for knowing God's will. But it is not necessary for knowing God exists or for knowing something about God's character or moral laws. So so basically Grudem's definition there is is helping us distinguish between the... um, the general revelation that nature and creation and kind of the human conscience that we talked about a couple weeks ago, those things outside of scripture can tell us things about God. That's true. But the reason that the necessity of scripture is characteristic is because we need the Bible to know the gospel. Looking at a tree is not going to get you to believe in Jesus as your only salvation. It's just never going to do it. It can teach you other good things about God and his character and his goodness and all that, but it's never going to get you to Jesus. And so the scripture is necessary to get you to Jesus and to maintain your spiritual life and to know what God wants from you, his will, right? So, uh, so we need the Bible for those things. Basically, we need the Bible to be growing, maturing Christians, uh, to become Christians in the first place, and then to grow as Christians. Uh, If we don't have the Bible as Christians, we are going to have a stunted spiritual life. That is the reality. Now, we may be saved because we hear the gospel preached by someone who has the Bible. And I'm not saying that everybody pre-Reformation where they didn't have their own Bible in their hand is is all doomed. No, they heard heard the gospel at least enough uh, for some of them to be saved. That God has always had his people uh, in every generation know and understand him as as he leads. But the Bible is necessary for us um, if we're going to grow as Christians in, in the depth that he wants us to go. Um, so we'll, we'll unpack kind of each of these things. The necessity of scripture for knowing the gospel. Uh, Romans chapter 10, 
13 to 17. I'll read this for us here. Um, uh, here's what it says. Uh, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Or how are they to believe in him uh, of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, the Lord who has believed uh, Lord, sorry, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's interesting that Paul didn't say uh, it comes from, through reading, right? Now that's true, like we can read it and believe, but, uh, but the primary way in the culture of Paul's day, we have to understand this, most people didn't read. They didn't have educations. Um, in fact, the idea that most people, like most people today, or at least a lot of people today, uh, are literate, that's a pretty new invention in the grand scheme of things. About 500 years, people have started to become literate on a, on a mass scale. Uh, most people throughout history were not literate unless they were high highbrow and educated people. So Paul's saying, listen, um, but his point is is the same. Like we can we can put read in place of heard, and and it's gonna get to get us to the same point. But the point is is this that faith comes through the word of Christ. It comes through Jesus's word, and whether that's heard in a sermon or whether that's read in the Bible, that's ultimately the means by which faith comes into our lives. So we need the scripture for knowing the gospel. We also need the scripture for maintaining a spiritual life. 1 Peter 2.2. 2. Um, <clears throat> it says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that, it may gr- may, uh, grow, that you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So it, Paul's, uh, Peter excuse me, is using an analogy of a newborn infant and milk and Paul's, excuse me, I'm sorry, Peter is, is saying here that just like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, new Christians long for the spiritual things. Um, so, so we can grow up, right? He's saying that we need the Bible to grow in our spiritual life. That's, that's his main point. Um, we need the Bible for knowing God's will. We need, to know, we need the Bible to know what God wants from us. Deuteronomy 29.29 The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So, so this is where the covenant is renewed. The covenant with Moses People of Israel are renewing this covenant and they're acknowledging that there are some things that belong to the Lord, these secret things. In other words, God knows things that we don't know, but the things that are revealed, meaning the things that this law is telling us, 
And we could, we could expand that out now as Christians and say things that the whole Bible is telling us belong to us and to our children forever in order that we may do all the words of this law, in order that we might live this life. Um, God has to reveal to us these things. And, um, and the scriptures are what does that, shows us what God wants from us. Um, we're not going to go through all this because we kind of talked through these uh, two weeks ago, but the scriptures are not necessary to know God exists. We looked at Romans 1, 19 to 21, uh, the first week, uh, the talk about how creation uh, does point us to God. Um, we'll just roll through these quickly. The scriptures are not necessary for knowing something about God's character or laws. Here we can read these because we didn't. I don't think we got to Romans 2 before, so I can take us here but um, Romans 2 14 and 15 for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts um, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So here the Apostle Paul is saying that Gentiles, group people who are outside of the covenant of Israel, still can live out aspects of God's law, even though they don't even know where it comes from because it's written on their hearts. So Paul's point is that the scriptures are not necessary for knowing something about God's character or laws because we have a conscience given to us by God. Uh, and so that's kind of the main point there. And then scripture is not necessary for knowing something about God's character or his laws, the same verse there. Um, so basically the, the idea is the same, right? We, we don't have to have the written word to know some things, but we do need to have the written word to know how to be saved and how to live in God's will. So questions on the necessity of scripture or comments or thoughts or whatever? All right, let's roll to the fourth one here. The sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contained all the words of God that he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history and that now contain all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting him, and for obeying him. So this is kind of acknowledging the, the reality of things is that this book in its entirety did not just plop down out of heaven as, as we have it, right? It was a progressive revelation is what the fancy theological word is. Progressive revelation means that God revealed basically who he is in drips and drops throughout history, culminating in Jesus and the early church apostles. Okay, so, so now today that we have the whole scripture for, uh, written out for us in, in uh, our hands. Praise God for that. Um, we, we have now all the words that we need that God wants us to know to get us to salvation, to get us to trust him and get us to obey him. And, and, but in every stage, here's kind of the key, in every stage of redemptive history, the people in that phase of history knew what God needed them or wanted them, I should say, to know. That, that there is... So again, he didn't give everybody everything, but he does 
uh, give them what they need in that season. Now, we live in the last days, is what the scriptures call the time we're living in, the time between his ascension and his return, the last days. Now, everything's made clear to us. We have it. It doesn't mean we know absolutely everything about God. Uh, We can't possibly get there. We talked about that earlier, I think last week. But we have everything he wants us to know to be saved, to trust him, and to obey him. So 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17, he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The sacred writings is the Old Testament. And that's amazing that the Old Testament can make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. And then, he, then Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God. Right? We saw that earlier. And is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be equipped, a complete rather, equipped for every good work. So, so there Paul, in, in that paragraph, lays out that the Bible is sufficient for what we need. It is sufficient to get us to Jesus. It is sufficient to teach us, to reprove us, to correct us, to train us in righteousness, and to complete and equip us for every good work. In other words, the whole Christian life is uh, given to a, or we can live the Christian life through the scriptures is, is what we're needing to get to. So the sufficiency of, Christ, of the scriptures reminds us of a few things. It reminds us that we are to add nothing to Scripture and we are to consider no other writing of equal value to Scripture. This does not mean, I want to clear this up, it doesn't mean that reading other books isn't helpful for you to understand the Bible it's, or to know some things about the Christian life. But again, those things don't compare to the authority or even the sufficiency of Scripture. They are not of equal value. They may have some value, but Scripture has greater value. The sufficiency of Scripture reminds us that God does not require us to believe anything about himself or his redemptive work that is not found in Scripture. You don't have to believe anything about God that he doesn't show about himself. In fact, I would argue you shouldn't believe anything about God that he hasn't shown in, him, in the scriptures. The sufficiency of scripture reminds us that nothing is a sin that is, forbid, that is not forbidden by scripture, either explicitly or by implication. If the scripture doesn't call it a sin, we don't call it a sin. To do that is legalism. That's the definition, okay? Um, so we, we avoid that at Springbrook like the plague, right? Um, the, the sufficiency of Scripture reminds us that nothing is required of us by God that is not commanded in Scripture, either explicitly or implicitly. So there's nothing that the Bible requires or that, that God requires of you that's not commanded of you in Scripture. So if somebody tells you, you need to do this to be a good Christian, and you're going, where, does, where is that written? If it's not written, then you can go, That's your opinion. Have a nice day. Um, And then lastly, the sufficiency of Scripture reminds us 
that our doctrinal and ethical teachings should emphasize what Scripture emphasizes and be content with what God has told us in Scripture. So we, our doctrinal beliefs, our ethical uh, convictions should emphasize what God emphasizes. We should care about the things God cares about in ethics. We should believe the things that God has clearly laid out uh, in our doctrine. And um, we should be content with what God has told us. I know a lot of times we want, we want more. You know, we want more than he's told us. And the reality is I think he's, he's told us more than we could ever consume in an entire lifetime. So we should be content with what we have. All right, any questions about that? Okay. Let's talk about this, though. So those are the four characteristics, but I want to talk about the story of Scripture. I want to basically conclude tonight by just talking about what the Scripture fundamentally is. And the Bible is fundamentally a story. It's a narrative. It, it, it gives us this big, grand, beautiful story of God. And Jesus is the central figure in this, in this story, in the Bible. I, I referenced this earlier, but the Old Testament looks forward to Christ and the New Testament looks back at Christ. And so Jesus sits firmly in the center of this book. Um, everything is either pointing to him or pointing back at him. And he is, the, he is the point of the Bible. He is the true story. This is a story that uh, is a true story, right? It's not a make-believe story. It's not a fairy tale. I know that word story can maybe conjure in your mind like false or make, made up. It's, it, that's not what a story is, though. A story can be true, and this is a true story about, about a, a king who comes down to his people to redeem them and rescue them. And the main chapters of this story, if you want to boil the Bible down to its essence, there are four chapters in the story of the Bible. And the whole story, the whole Bible tells this story and does it in obviously a much less concise way. But the concise story of the Bible is creation. So God creates the world. And we're going to talk about that next week. That's our subject for next week. Creation. And then this good creation that God made, led by Adam and Eve, fell into sin and rebellion against God. And as they did that, they plunged the entire world and all of their offspring into sin and separation from God. And so then the third part of the story is redemption. How God takes this fallen world and brings it around to restoration with him again through the redemption that we find in Christ and through the ultimate fulfillment at his return, right? So creation, fall, redemption, restoration is the, the big categories of the Bible. And we obviously it, tell, it takes a lot of stories and a lot of chapters to tell that story. Um, and where we are in that story is somewhere in between redemption and restoration, the whole story hasn't completely come to a conclusion yet. Christ will come back and bring about the full restoration of, of his people and his world. And we'll get to that. Actually, I think the last week of this thing, week 12, we're going to talk about the end times and those good things. But um, we're, we're looking at this story of the Bible from creation to fall 
to the redemption that Jesus is. The center of the story is this child who is born to save his people from their sins. And then ultimately those people are redeemed and being restored and will one day be fully restored. So um, as we work through this this class, we are going to get to each of these chapters um, Maybe not all in a row. We, we're going to talk about a lot of things, but we're going to hit all these pieces um, to try to give you a well-rounded theology of the Bible as we work through it. Um, I think one last thing to do is I just want to apply this. How does the scripture impact your everyday life? Like if, if you walk out of here going, wow, I learned a lot of things about the Bible, but it doesn't actually get you in the Bible. I think I... I've decisively failed at what I'm trying to do here. <laughs> so I want to give you what you need to know to trust the Bible and to get into it, to read it, and to digest it. And the, the Bible itself tells us some of the most beautiful things about what it does for us in real life. Psalm 19, 7 through 13 is the passage. I could, we could go to a number of places for this. We could go back to 2 Timothy 3 and talk about it there. But this is, I love. I just love the poetry in it. And so... We'll, uh, we'll talk through it. So Psalm 19, verse 7 through 13, it says the law, the law is, a, is just another synonym for the word of God in, in this time, at this time in history. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. So the first thing that we're told that the word of God does is it revives our soul. As, as we live in a world that just is discouraging and beats us down and sometimes feels like it's going to crush us under, under its weight and under its evil and all the things that we deal with, we have the Bible to revive us, to bring us back to hope and life again. And, and I, I'm real thankful for a guy named Brian Howard who he helps lead the Acts 29 network. And he was encouraging us um, a while back and just saying, you know, before you guys read the news, read the Bible. Because the Bible is good news. You need good news before you get all the bad news. And I would argue, read the good news and then the bad news and then the good news again. <laughs> like, Keep the Bible centered because it revives your soul. There's a lot of darkness in the world. We, we know this. It can be so discouraging, and yet the Bible is perfect, and it revives the soul. It says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Talked about this in the clarity of Scripture, right? That The Bible makes the simple people, like me and like you and like all of us, right? We're compared to God, at least. We're all simple. We don't, can't, our heads can't be wrapped around the, the depths of these things, but yet the Bible helps bring wisdom to us. The Bible has an entire series of books called the wisdom books. If you don't know where else to go, go to Proverbs. It'll, it just has like a ton. It's literally God's inspired wisdom for you to apply to life situations. Um, the Bible tells us in James that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all. Well, you know how he gives us wisdom? He gives us wisdom by pointing us to his word and, being, and giving us the, the, 
the wisdom, we need to apply it. Verse 8 says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The Bible brings rejoicing to the heart. Why? Because the gospel is the best news in the world, and it is what can lift you up from the depths of despair. It can bring great joy to you. That's what, that's what was the resounding message at Jesus' birth. I bring you great news, uh, news, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Jesus and his word rejoices the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So it opens the eyes. The Bible makes us be able to see. That's what enlightening means. The implication is that you're blind and you're in darkness. But the Bible opens your eyes through the Spirit of God, working through it to help you to see Jesus. And I I love, there's a story in John uh, chapter 9 where Jesus does this miracle where he heals a blind man. It was a man who was born blind. He had never seen before. He was well known in the area because he had been begging on the street probably most of his life. And Jesus comes to him and he heals him and um, he helps, he makes him see. And then this man gets dragged into the court of the Pharisees and they're questioning him about how he could see. They're trying to figure out how this happened. And and he just kind of goes, look, I don't know who the guy is. He just showed up and he opened my eyes and here we are. I can see. And, and they're just like, well, who is he? Tell us who he is. And they're just badgering him. And um, Jesus uh, is gone through most of the story. And he shows up at the end after the guy's dismissed from, from the questioning. Jesus finds him and he says, hey, you can see. Isn't that cool? And, and this guy's like, yeah, that's amazing. Apparently there were some Pharisees overhearing this. And Jesus is saying, listen, I, basically I'm paraphrasing here. But he says, I, I opened up your eyes uh, to, to prove that there are people who say they can see, but they can't actually see. And, and the Pharisees are like, you're talking about us, aren't you? He's like, yep, I'm talking about you. Like, you guys think you can see, but you can't see, right? We need the Bible. We need God's word. We need the word that is Jesus Christ, the word, the true word to open our eyes, to enlighten us to who he is and to what we need to do. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. So the word of God will last eternally. There will never be a time where it is obsolete. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Every word of God that he has in this Bible is righteous. It is right. It is is pure. It is holy. It says, more to be desired are they, they being the words of God, than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. He says that the Bible should be desired more than riches and wealth, more than, more than delicious honey, more than anything that we can desire in this life. It, it should be desired by us. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. The Bible warns us. The Bible warns us. That is a good thing. This is a grace from God that the Bible confronts us with our foolishness, with our sinfulness. It puts in front of us like a mirror the reality of who we are and we can see that and go, okay, got to course correct. Got to come back to Jesus. Need, need him to, to help me in this sin. He warns his servant through his word. 
In keeping them, there is great reward. God rewards those who keep his word. It says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. He's saying in these verses that outside of the Bible, we can't discern what's wrong with us. We can't discern our errors. We can't discern our sins. But we need him and his word to declare us innocent from hidden faults. And this is why Romans 8 is in the Bible, right? There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. He declares you innocent if you're in Christ. He declares you completely right before him. We need the Bible to affirm those things in us. That's why they're in the scriptures. The Bible keeps us back from presumptuous sins and help us, helps us to break the dominion of sin over us. And then it says, we shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. We become blameless and innocent as Jesus applies his grace to our lives and gives us his righteousness. And then the last verse, I love it. He says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So this closes with a prayer to say, Lord, might I say and may I think what's acceptable to you in your sight. So we see that this is just one example, one little passage of where the Bible takes us um, and how it helps us and where, where we go from here. And so I, I hope that the doctrine of Scripture doesn't just become something that you, you chug, chug in the back and you go, oh, okay, whatever, cool, that's neat, but, um, but that it's something that actually you apply to your life and you get in the Bible and you read it, it will change your life. If you are approaching it with humility and, and dependence on Christ, you can't, you can't read it and not walk away changed. I, I really believe that. So, so with that said, I'll encourage you with that. And then uh, next week, we're going to start the doctrine of creation. So this will be a fun one to, to talk through. Um, and I'm looking forward to that. So let, let me pray for us though, as, and then you guys can head out. Uh, Jesus, thank you for your word. We, we really do want to come before you and thank you that you have kept your word, preserved your word, fulfilled it in Christ, that we, that we have it to read it and digest it and believe it. And would you help us, Lord, to actually want more of it? And we pray that you would do this in us and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Have a great night.